Josh and Rachel are watching this morning. They're faithful, regular attenders. They've been missing for a few Sundays because Rachel had her baby a couple weeks ago. And I'm so delighted about that. Little Anne, Amelia Antoinette. Almost got them out of order. Amelia Antoinette. Of course, Kevin and Antoinette's grandbaby. And so much to celebrate there. And if you want to uh, celebrate them some more, you can reach out to Ashley. Uh, she'll get you the contact information. As you well know, some of you don't have to think back too far. Some of you have to think back a ways, but sometimes a meal helps out when uh, everything's pandemonium at home. So grateful for that. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number 12. We're going to finish up chapter 12 this morning. This is a, um, I tell you, this is a tough text. Not difficult to work, it's just tough in the weight of the text. This is not one of those you're going to leave this morning high-fiving each other saying, boy, I've got my best life now, right? This is just one of those texts that ought to have us leave somber and reflective. Rejoicing, yes, but feeling the weight of the words of Christ. Jesus is going to address folks that reject Him. What, what does it mean to reject Jesus? You, you've got friends that say, I, I, I really don't believe in Jesus. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, that sounds profound, doesn't it? I believe in God, but I don't think you need the Bible to get there. I, I like the idea of God and positive energy, but I reject the God of the Old Testament. Good people go to heaven when they die. Everybody eventually makes it to heaven. It doesn't really matter what you believe. All of these are lies straight out of hell itself. But you can probably add to that list of folks that you've engaged with the gospel, probably family members and friends alike who have said a little more than thanks, but no thanks. Jesus deals with the weight and the reality of rejecting Him in our passage this morning. And I want to just say on the, right at the beginning of our text, the impending state of our unbelieving friends, of our unbelieving family members, of our unbelieving neighbors and co-workers should move us to action. It should cause us to passionately agonize in prayer at some point. It should cause us to live out in front of them a life that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to care enough to open our mouths and proclaim the hope that Jesus is. Today's text has in it some of the saddest, most painful parts of the Gospel of John next to the crucifixion of our Lord. There's a trace of sadness in the Christmas story that comes to fruition here, if you recall. Do you remember the prophet Simeon that was in the temple when Jesus was brought into the temple for circumcision? Simeon addresses Mary and Joseph as they're bringing baby Jesus in, and he says something to them. He doesn't say, oh, let me squeeze that baby's cheeks. Now, he may have, but they didn't put that in the text. He doesn't say, make sure you get over to the photo booth to get a picture before you leave today. We're going to post this on the social media feed. He may have, but that didn't make it into the text. But he said something prophetic from the Lord 
to them. Look with me at Luke 2. I'll put it on the screen for you. Simeon says to them, he blesses them. Now, you've been blessed before, but I doubt like this. And he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now my family tries to send out Christmas cards that have some spiritual meaning to them. We've never found one with this verse on it. Can you imagine getting a Christmas card from your pastor with that verse on it? You'd say, pray for the pastor. Something's up. But what a daunting prophetic word just to remind them that God's plan to rescue humanity had not changed. You will call Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Our passage today is one of the many fulfillments of the very sad part of that prophecy where it says, Jesus will cause many to fall. Sometimes, we encounter sad and dark things in our Bible reading. But it's important to remember that They're there in the end to point us to good and greater things. Someone wrote, dark things are spoken for the sake of light. Ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. Painful things are spoken for the sake of peace and comfort. Sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy and conflict is pictured for the sake of peace. Here, We encounter the dark, ugly, painful, sorrowful reality of unbelief. You would think that once Jesus showed up, that the best half of Simon's prophecy would come true. Because of Jesus, many will rise. And that's true. But that's not our text this morning. I want you to look at our first point and remind you that unbelief has been prophesied and predicted throughout all of Scripture. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, wink, take notes this morning. There's your first point. Unbelief was predicted. If you feel super spiritual, you can write prophesied. Unbelief was predicted. Look at verses 37 through 41. Though he had done many signs, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, he's hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Why couldn't they see? Well, we talked about the way the king arrived Last week, they were blinded because they wanted a king to show up a certain way. They didn't want a king to show up in a manger. No thanks. We don't want a lowly king. We want a high king. Why couldn't they see? Because they wanted a king to ride in with a sword and take out the Romans. But instead, he brought the sword of the Lord, which is the word of God, and pierced their black hearts of sin. And they said, no thanks. We'll do life our way, but we still want a king. We'll not have this man to rule over us. Christ was predicted in the Old Testament 
present in the Gospel, proclaimed in the Acts, possessed in the Epistles, and predominant in Revelation. Our friend Dr. Wearsby penned that years ago. But not only was Jesus Christ predicted as the hope of glory, so was His rejection. Paul would bring out the same Scripture in Romans 10 when he wrote, they have not all obeyed the Gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Not just Israel rejecting the Lord. Isaiah the prophet would record this in Isaiah 53 in stark words, and he indicts all of us when he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. God knows rejection. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, you see the playing out of the rejection of God the Father. In the New Testament, we see the rejection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Stephen Olford peered penned years ago. So in this age, I guess what we're seeing in front of us is a rejection of the Holy Spirit. While we who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good struggle to see how anybody, anybody could reject so great a Savior. How could they reject such a loving God? It was prophesied that He would be rejected. It's a sad, dark, ugly, painful, sorrowful reality, but it is the reality. We have to understand that the Bible is true, the parts that are happy and joyous and awesome that we put on our wall art at home and the parts that we would never frame and send anybody in a note of encouragement. But can I remind you that from this sad, awful, ugly, painful rejection, came Calvary's cross. The Bible tells us that for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that rejection led to the trail of tears right up Golgotha on a lonely hill outside the city. Colossians 1 tells us that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. I want you to notice uh, something strange that happens. We've got out and out rejection and unbelief, and I want you to see that and feel the weight of that. It was prophesied. God knew it was coming. It didn't change the plan. It was a part of the plan. And then we come upon this passage. I told my wife, even as Jeremy read it this morning, I said, it just makes me angry, those two verses do. I, you ever read some passage of Scripture and you get so mad at folks there and then you wonder if my life was written down, they'd be like, that makes me angry, Chad, when you did that. What are you thinking? Look with me at verses 42 and 43 as we come to our second major point this morning. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. Now there's not a period there. I want a period there. Don't you want a period there? Many of the authorities believed in him. And you go, hallelujah, it's not all bad news. I'm not sure this is great news. Let's read on. There's a comma there. It says, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
What? Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What? Let me give you the point. Partial belief was problematic. You could say is problematic. It's worse than that, but I'm trying to give you a point here. Partial belief is problematic. Now, I, I did a lot of digging because I was having a tough time with these two verses. And I looked at languages and all the things, and it kind of says what it says. I mean, there's no hidden nugget in the original language. It's pretty plain, straightforward what's there. So I go to some trusted voices, and I get folks saying, it's not all bad news, right? Some believe, but there was a, some toughness with their belief, and I just wanted to throw up in a bag, to be honest. I was like, this is, these are not my kind of people. Like, what is up with this? I appreciate that some have written that it's an indication that it's not all hopeless, that some are stepping toward Jesus, and that not everyone is totally rejecting Jesus, but best case scenario about these guys. Let's play it out. Best case scenario. These are high-ranking officials that were in fact, and I can't use air quotes any stronger than this, saved, but had a terrible testimony and cut themselves off from any usefulness from God. Best case scenario. But I'm struck by the black and white description that kept rattling around in my brain from Charles Spurgeon from years ago. I'm like, I know this. I've read this before. I went digging, found it. Listen, Spurgeon puts it this way. There was a man who was almost saved in a fire, but he was burned. There was another who was almost healed of a disease, but he died. There was one who was almost reprieved, but he was hanged. And there are many in hell who were almost saved. Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Paul wrote, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The preacher in Hebrews said, don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. I want to challenge you this morning to be all in with Jesus. If you're one of these that could be described in verses 42 and 43, I want you to know something. I love you with the love of God, but you get on my last good nerve because you are a liability to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not an asset. You're not advancing the kingdom of God. For some reason, your power, your position, your possessions, or your influence are stopping your mouth from proclaiming the only truth that will last for all eternity. There's a problem with your partial belief. You know what it is? It's called unbelief. Almost you persuade me. Don't leave your family in a position at your funeral, at your wake, getting up there trying to recall some transactional moment that you told them about in church when you didn't live for Jesus all of your life. Well, he signed a card in 1947. So praise God he's in heaven. Where's that bag? I don't... Be all in with Jesus. He's worth it. He was all in for you. Finally, this morning, as we let the text play itself out, the, the last notes here won't need much. 
you, you may take a few notes, but uh, there's not a lot of amplifying needed here. Let's look at verses 44 through 50 and notice the power. You could say also the authority of Jesus' promise. I want you to see the power in what Jesus says here. Look with me at verse 44. I think I just put that verse up and then we're just going to look in our Bibles for the rest of our time. In verse 44, Jesus cries out and says, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Let me give you a few little things to write down that I think are important. And I know that you know these things, but you've got friends that say crazy things like, I I like Jesus, but I don't like God. Well, Jesus just said, believing in Jesus is believing in God. It's the same thing. If you believe Jesus, you believe in God. If we read on in verses 45 and 46, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Hearing Jesus is hearing God. John's gospel has been laying this out the whole time. Jesus said in John 10, you recall, I and the Father are one. It's central to the gospel. It's central to our Christian faith. Jesus is God. Believing in Jesus is believing in God. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Hearing Jesus is hearing from God. No one who denies the Son has the Father. John would write in 1 John 2, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What you do with Jesus is the clearest test on what you believe about God. Look at what Jesus said about hearing His Word. Verse 47 and 48. Look at the text. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me does not receive My words and has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Verse 49. For I have not spoken of My own authority, but the Father who sent Me. In John's Gospel, These are the last words that Jesus says to gathered crowds. I want you to process that. The rest of the dialogue or monologue we get from Jesus is either right with the disciples in John's Gospel or it's with those other folks He encounters on the road to Calvary's cross. For 2,000 years, we've had exactly what we need as the Christian church from the Word of God. This is how we know Him. This is how we know God. This is how we receive God. This is how we fellowship with God. This is the precious living Word of our precious living Savior. This is not just designed to help you have a good day. Find a nugget, try to nourish you. This is how we engage with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and this God, in this Word, right before He steps off the scene into these more private discourses, then lays it down thick when He says rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. It's a package deal. You don't get to say, well, if I had it my way, you, you do have it your way. That's the default way, and that way leads to death and destruction. Many roads lead to God, but only one leads to His forgiveness, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody will stand before God. Make no mistake. But only those in Christ stand forgiven. Jesus said, you'll be judged by the Word. The one who rejects Me, verse 48, and does not receive My words has a judge. The Word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
I want to tell you, you'll be judged by the Word. Rejecting Jesus, you'll be judged by the Word of God. You'll be judged also, and you won't escape God's authority. There's nowhere you can hide or run. I told you it was a somber text this morning. Verses 49 and 50, I'm coming uh, nearing the end here. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Verse 50, look at it with me, please. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Can we say that verse together out loud that's on the screen? Verse 50, let's read it together. Ready? Go. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is offering light and life, but it's not divorced from His Word or His Father. There's no side road into this thing. In the New City Catechism, the question is asked, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. Jesus is addressing those of you and those of our friends and family who will say stuff like, you know, I like some things about God, but I'm finding my own way. I don't really go in for all that Bible stuff. I like Jesus, but I reject the idea of a God of wrath. Good people go to heaven when they die. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Jesus makes it clear. God's Word makes it clear. To reject Him is a matter of eternal consequence. Jesus is not simply an upgrade to your otherwise awesome life. He's not your ticket to a better you. He actually wants to crush you and make you into something brand new that the world will likely despise and reject. Make room at the altar. I bet the invitation's going to be. They're going to be running. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, the perfect Lamb of God, died in your place, absorbing the wrath of His Father so that you could be saved from God's righteous anger against sin. The only right response to that kind of love is to fall on your face and repent and beg Jesus to save you. Your friends and family must repent of their sins, which means they need to turn away from their rebellion against God. Repentance doesn't mean we we bring an immediate end to our sinning, but it does mean that we'll never again live at peace with sin. You can't have peace with God and peace with sin at the same time. That's a contradiction that cannot abide. This happens as we turn to God in faith. Faith is reliance on God. Faith is promise-based trusting in the risen Savior to save you from your sins because of His grace 
and mercy. You can't work your way toward it. You won't say the right things to get there. It's the fact that God is already at work in your heart, drawing you to His precious Son. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. He has borne our sins in His body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He, Jesus, might bring us to God. Don't reject Jesus. And don't be satisfied with your friends and family rejecting Jesus, saying, well, I hope they'll come around someday. Pray like it depends on your prayers for them to come. Agonize over them in prayer. You say, yeah, but if it's God's will for some not to believe, what's the use in praying? Walk with me one Saturday morning to the closest thing to the gates of hell this side of eternity. Some of you did yesterday. Listen to our brother Flip tenderly, graciously, crying out to those who take pleasure and delight in killing babies for money, calling them to repentance. I'm no scholar, but I'm guessing that a reprobate and seared conscience looks like those people that do that for money. And yet, because we don't know what's been written over their souls, we still extend the hope of being made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have anybody that's more lost than them. And they hear the gospel every day they're there from folks just like you, crying out for hope. I wonder if we want those around us to feel the weight of their unbelief, or if we want them to go through life happy and discover Jesus as an upgrade. How's that working for us? I wonder if we want them to understand they're in a state of hostile rebellion against the holy King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we want to see them saved? And I pray their names would be on the tips of our tongues and the front of our minds and we're moved to action as the people of God. The weight of their unbelief should cause us to passionately cry out to God for their souls. The weight of their unbelief should cause us to live on mission in front of them. The weight of their unbelief should cause us to pray for an open door to tell them about a Jesus who will save them if they'll cast themselves on Him alone. If Jesus saves them, hallelujah. If He saves you today, maybe watching online or sitting in a pew at 1800 South Boulevard, if He saves you today, that you have the, your whole life of getting to know Jesus ahead of you, beginning today, what a God. What a Savior. Sad, painful text. But it points us to the life and light-giving words of a Savior who steps into our darkness to rescue us from ourselves. As Julia comes this morning to the piano to just play so that we might have a moment to reflect, can I give you two things, two postures of prayer this morning? First, would you pray and ask the Lord to help you rejoice and to celebrate the fact that He took the weight of your unbelief and nailed it to a cross. If you're in Christ this morning, you are saved and forgiven. And if some of us can't figure out how to celebrate, you should come to an Alpha and Omega service. They'll train you on how to smile and celebrate the fact that you've been forgiven of your sins and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Maybe start there. 
the second posture of your heart this morning. Would you ask the Lord, this will be tough. Lord, would you, by your grace, give me seasons of agony in prayer for the perishing around me. Break my heart for the unbelief around me. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to save our loved ones today. Turn their darkness into light because of the gospel. Turn their ugliness into beauty. Turn their pain into comfort, their sorrow into joy, their war with you into peace with you and from you. And Lord, if you'd be so kind as to use us in that process, we'll give you the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.